Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario Liberals are in trouble. We all know that. But what could that mean for the federal Liberal Party? There's also a belief among some Canadians that we should dismantle the RCMP in the face of the scandals and criticisms that plague the force. Is that time come? And Louise Blaise, who is a former senior diplomat and a special advisor for international affairs at the Business Council of Canada, will join us to discuss Canada's relations with Mexico. Since the three amigos are meeting, it seems very relevant. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of speculation, of course, as we uh, begin into a new get into a new year here about the possibility of a federal election. I know it's not scheduled to, but there's a buzz around Ottawa these days. And uh, well, once you start looking at the political parties involved and where they are right now when it comes to public opinion, uh, there's an interesting piece that uh, is on the TVO.org uh, webpage right now uh, by our next guest. Uh, the Ontario Liberals are in trouble. We all know that, of course, because of the seat count that they have. But what does that mean for a federal Liberal Party? Matt Gertie is a columnist for TVO and, of course, for the National Post. Uh, he's the author of the piece, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Matt, good to have you back. Uh, belated Happy New Year to you. Hey, the same to you. Hope it's a great one. Uh, we all do, I guess, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping, I guess, that the Liberals are expecting it to be a good year for them as well. I, I was fascinated by the piece, Matt, because we've both been doing this thing for a long time right now, and and as much as politicians will tell you, look, at there's a big difference between a provincial party, liberal, conservative, whatever it is, and the federal party. They're, but more often than not, I find that no matter how many times they say that, the public just still tends to conflate them. A liberal is a liberal, a conservative is a conservative. And if you love the federal party, you probably like the provincial party and vice versa. Yeah. And I think, look, a lot of the times the parties lean into this, right? Like it's not like the public has sort of erroneously drawn this conclusion. Whenever things are going well for a party, other parties want to ride the coattails, right? And there are sure. times when you even see explicit cooperation between different levels of a party, right? You want to uh, do well provincially. So you bring in some popular federal figures to knock on doors and do fundraising and things like that. So there is obvious connections. Uh, the connections are real sometimes, and sometimes they're a little more esoteric, right? Like you might draw from the same pool of donors. You might draw from the same pool of volunteers. And those aren't official links, but they're real ones. So there are connections between federal liberals and provincial liberals, federal conservatives and provincial conservatives. But they are, as I said in the column, actually different entities like they they have different um goals they have different corporate structures they have different leadership and i think in ontario in particular right now you are really seeing a divergence between both the conservative and liberals in terms of their federal and provincial counterparts here let's just be honest here if the provincial liberals did as well in ontario as the federal liberals did we'd have Pre premier del duca right now conversely if in the last election, if the federal conservatives had done as well in Ontario as the provincial conservatives did, right now we'd have Prime Minister Aaron O'Toole. It's it's interesting, and, and your point's well taken, you, you, notwithstanding the fact that, as you say, they are different entities. Uh, when it suits their purpose, uh, they like to align themselves with the federal and provincial parties, whichever one we're talking about here. Uh, but the the inverse is also true. And, and your example about Doug Ford's popularity in Ontario in the last federal election, I think, is a classic example. Uh, Ford, obviously, very popular and had another majority government. Uh, but he didn't want Aaron O'Toole anywhere around him during that whole campaign. Uh, and, and it reflected clearly in the conservative vote. So, you know, when it's to their purpose, they love to have that association. Uh, when they feel that the other party is going to drag them down or be a millstone around their neck, they don't want anything to do with them. 
And I think in a weird way in recent years, we've seen the alignment of interests between the federal and the provincial parties almost going counter to what you'd expect, whereas Justin Trudeau probably sees value in Premier Doug Ford. And I don't know if Premier Doug Ford saw any value in Prime Minister O'Toole. And I think some of that is probably strategic calculation, but I think some of it is also, you know, big personalities, big egos, people not playing nicely together when maybe they ought to be. And, and of course, as you say, I mean, oftentimes these decisions can reflect on the other parties as well. Do we see that happening, though? Uh, and as you mentioned, in the last provincial and federal elections, had that popularity rubbed off on the other party, we might have seen a different result. Uh, but is it is it fair to say that as right now, you know, since the, shall we say the Ontario Liberals are in a, in a, in a down, downward cycle right now? I mean, things did not go well in the last provincial election for them, nor the one before that, for instance. So what does that do to the Ontario Liberal brand? That's a great question. Um, I, I made a point in my column of, of being very clear about the fact that I was not predicting doom for the Ontario Liberals. They've been around for a long time. You know the old saying, right? There's a lot of ruin in a nation, and I suspect there's a lot of ruin in a struggling provincial political party as well. I don't think two bad elections uh, equals doom for them. But, <laughs> so having covered my butt here, let me go and make the opposite argument. Both the 2018 and the 2022 elections resulted in the Liberals doing sort of an analysis of what went wrong for them. And as my colleague at TVO, John Michael McGrath, had written, the postmortem of the Liberals' 2022 election really reads an awful lot like the postmortem of the one from four years before. They know what the problems are. They just don't know how to fix them, and maybe they can't be fixed. The party has a brand problem. People don't know what the Ontario Liberals stand for. It has a baggage problem. People are still angry at them over things that went back years ago, uh, gas plants or energy plans or, or things like that. And I think the thing that jumped out at me for the column I wrote for TVO uh, yesterday was that they're having a hard time recruiting volunteers. And there's just not a lot of people uh, in this last election who were willing to show up and knock on doors and do canvassing and uh, be a scrutineer at polling stations and things like that. And that, to me, man, is a gigantic red flag. And as I said in the column, I think for uh, provincial liberals, it probably is as well. You can't win elections without volunteers. You also probably can't recruit volunteers unless you have a reasonable chance at winning elections here. This is the stuff that death spirals are made out of. If losing leads to more losing, leads to more losing, leads to more losing, it's not impossible to get out of that, but it's really, really hard. And I don't know how many more elections the Ontario Liberals can lose before they just start not having the ability anymore to meaningfully ever contest another one ever again. Which, of course, happened some time ago here in the province of Ontario. I mean, the, you know, the Conservatives ran this province for, what, 43 years uh, between Liberal governments. Uh, they just couldn't get over there, and they couldn't change the brand or change people's perception of them, I guess. What, what do you need to do then? Is it personality? Is it policy? What, what are people looking for? I honestly, you know, one of the, it's, it's a great question, but one of the things I'm considering is just the possibility maybe that you can't. And I'm, I don't I know this might sound like I'm picking on the Ontario Liberals to a certain extent. I'm actually trying to take their side on this one. I'm trying to defend them there. Sometimes parties just find themselves locked out. 
I don't know if, you know, eventually, sooner or later, the, the people of Ontario are going to get tired of the progressive conservatives. And I don't know if that's going to be in three and a half years or seven and a half years or 11 and a half. Like, who knows? Right. Like, but sooner or later, they're going to want to throw the throw the bums out because it happens. It's inevitable in our democracy. Who is going to be the alternative? And I, for the liberals, one of the things they have to be considering and who knows, but it might not be them. You know, the Ontario Liberals did uh, roughly as well. In fact, I think they did a little bit better than the provincial NDP in the last election in terms of the popular vote, but they were nowhere close in terms of seat turnout because the NDP right now is the more efficient party. I don't know if that scales up. You know, I don't know if people will ever get so angry at Doug Ford or whoever replaces him as premier that they decide to go all the way over to the NDP. Maybe the liberals are saved at some point by people eventually just getting so tired of the PCs that they decide to move, you know, one step further over in the political spectrum and park their vote with the liberals for a while. But maybe it's possible that the NDP just entrenches itself as sort of the de facto opposition government in waiting and, Years from now, again, I don't know how many years, but at some point in the future, when the Doug Ford era is over, when the conservatives are stale and tired, the NDP is the beneficiary of that. And the liberals just find themselves locked out of power, as you said, maybe for another 43 years. Well, and, and at the end of that cycle, of course, well, you know, they finally elected a government, of course, but they got pretty tired of David Peterson. They would already kicked the conservatives out after 42 years and they elected David Peterson and the liberals. Uh, got pretty ticked off with him, of course, calling an election when they didn't want it. It's unusual, though, isn't it, really, Matt, to see them, as you say, take one step to one side or another, but to take two steps over, uh, to go from a conservative to an NDP, is not something you see very often. People might, that seems to be outside of their comfort level to make that much of a leap. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, I think one of the problems strategically for the NDP, and I, I've talked about this before, I've written about this before, I've even said as much to my NDP friends who don't really appreciate it when I do, but the possibility might be that the NDP is just too far left wing for the median Ontario voter. There are obviously NDP supporters in Ontario, and that's fine. But the NDP might have a problem of their own in the fact that they can't be both true to themselves and electable in the provinces of Ontario. The last two provincial elections ought to have been opportunities for the NDP to really, really over-deliver. These were opportunities for them to run against polarizing people, tired governments, governments with a lot of baggage, and they haven't really been able to get it done here. And I know my NDP friends would just say, hey, the timing wasn't right, or there were other factors working against us. But honestly, I just don't know if Ontario wants to elect another NDP government. The only NDP government we've ever elected almost you know, 30 years ago now, more than 30 years ago now, was a pretty unusual circumstance. And I don't know if that lightning is going to strike twice. Uh, voters seem to have long memories when it comes to stuff like that. And, and you know, the, the Ray government, uh, as you say, happened to be in the right place at the right time. They were ticked off at the liberals, ticked off at the conservatives. And, you know, as I was doing this show back in those days, uh, what amazed me as we headed into in the final few days of that election campaign was this turnabout all around at the NDP. And you know what I heard more often than not? Well, I'm tired of both of them. Let's give these guys a shot. Well, what do you what do they stand for? I don't really know, but I, I'm too angry at the other two guys. And he got a majority government out of it. You do have things like that happen occasionally. And maybe our our friends in the Ontario NDP are counting on that happening once again. But in a weird way, 40 years from now, it might be the Liberals who benefit from that kind of a surge. If we do end up seeing, and this is all hypothetical, we're just kicking an idea around here, 
But if Ontario politics do move in the direction of being sort of a two-party system with the PCs on one side and the NDP on the other, maybe 40 years from now, the Liberals are the guys who benefit from the throw the bums out surge. We don't know the dynamic that's going to happen here. And I, I know we're, we're playing in the hypothetical, but the possibility of a federal vote is is very real, I think. I mean, some things may have to happen here, but, you know, the, the life cycle of governments is usually not much longer than 10 years, and, and the Trudeau Liberals are approaching that right now. Is there a concern, do you think, in the back rooms up in Ottawa right now with the federal party, uh, that they've got to have Ontario to, to form government again? I mean, that's essential for, for the, the Liberals, and it looks like Trudeau is going to lead them into the next election. Uh, how, do, how do you separate them from, from the provincial Liberals right now, who are not very highly thought of, apparently, by Ontario voters? I honestly would say, I think the concern is more almost the opposite of that, right? Because I don't know if they want to be separated. One of the things that I don't think has been well understood, and I've written about it probably a half dozen times because I want people to understand this. The federal election we had a year and a half ago, back in September 2021, was much closer than the final result ended up suggesting because in many, many dozens of seats, the Aaron O'Toole-led conservatives were just behind the liberals. Now, hey, look, a loss is a loss. The liberals won that election fair and square. But the conservatives in dozens of ridings were really, really close. And a 1% movement probably would have resulted in some sort of a hung parliament. And a 2% movement, if the conservatives had done 2% better, they would have probably won a government. I don't know if they would have made it all the way to a majority, but they would have been close. It was really, really close last time. It doesn't take much to happen in the polls to have a pretty dramatic change in the seat count right now. When we look at the kind of state the Ontario Liberals are in, provincial parties for federal parties are often farm teams. It is where you get volunteers, you get fundraisers, you get candidates and political staffers and operatives. If the Ontario Liberals have sort of a prolonged period of really, really struggling and they can't recruit those guys, that that doesn't annihilate the pool of federal liberal talent in Ontario, but it does start to drain that pool a little bit here. I don't know how many elections it would take for that to start to matter, but when I start to think about how close the conservatives were last time, if a drain from the provincial liberals ends up knocking 1% off of how the federal liberals do in Ontario, that could actually swing who forms our federal government. Absolutely. And time will tell. I mean, I I still got a feeling we may have more to this coming later on this year. Uh, Great piece, by the way. Check it out uh, right now at uh, tvo.org and you can read it for yourself. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Take care. Matt Gurney, of course, uh, National Post columnist and, of course, contributor with TVO on their webpage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Should Canada dismantle its Mounties? Uh, Why some people think it's about time to do this. It's an interesting topic, especially in light of the fact that, uh, well, the RCMP have been in the news an awful lot in the last 12 months. And some would suggest oftentimes for all the wrong reasons, uh, some disciplinary, some uh, because of policy, some because of the uh, the deployment of them. And uh, of course, well, we've seen some of the stories and I don't want to rehash all of them. But is it time now? Uh, to focus on RCMP and talk about maybe, maybe delivering law enforcement in a different way. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Michael Kempa. Michael is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Great. Thank you, Bill. 
Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I don't want to get too deeply into the history. I'm sure the stories are still fresh in our minds. Uh, but with the negative publicity and with the way that policing has been delivered and, and what you're looking for, obviously, are results. Uh, is it time to reevaluate just what the RCMP means to law enforcement in this country? Well, it's well past time. We've been going around in circles on the question of RCMP reform since the McDonald Commission looked into domestic political espionage on the part of the RCMP in the 1970s. And we've hit on very similar recommendations ever since McDonald reported in 1981 through reports in the 1990s, the Brown Commission in the 2000s, a series of reforms proposed through the, the, the uh, teen years of the 21st century. We're pretty clear on how to go about reform, but it takes a lot of political will to do it. And it's a very risky political move to make to engage significant reform of the RCMP. Is, is that in part, uh, Michael, because we don't know what Plan B would look like? We don't. Uh, there are several options for where you would take the RCMP. For me, the details are sort of secondary to the, the underlying question, which is how do you set up an appropriate management structure for the RCMP? And once you figure out the management structure, you then take... A basically a ground-up approach to do a survey of RCMP in communities across the country and say, what should the RCMP be doing? What does its membership want to do? And with the appropriate management structure, you then design a police service that reflects what it does well and what communities say they want from that service. You can design whatever you like from a theoretical standpoint on a piece of paper and say, this ought to be the future of the RCMP. But if it doesn't reflect the reality of the organization on the ground and what people want and what officers want to do and does not have a management structure that could implement these types of reforms, you're wasting your time drawing out things on pieces of paper. I'm not trying to boil this down to just an elementary aspect of it, but it just seems, in, in, as I read some of the criticisms of this, that this is a, a law enforcement agency that's trying to be everything to everybody. And the, that old adage that if you're trying to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Well, that's it. So the RCMP provides local policing in 70% of Canada's landmass, mostly in rural areas. And that involves ordinary community-style policing, law enforcement, order maintenance, all the things that our municipal police services do across Canada. But then they also provide provincial police services uh, in most of the territories across Canada. But then they also provide federal policing responsibilities to do with international organized crime, protecting dignitaries, uh, federal issues on drug enforcement and so forth, national security functions and cooperation, and sometimes in competition with CSIS. And then all of these functions are being conducted by people who receive one type of training in a very old-fashioned facility in Saskatchewan, where they are trained to do one type of policing. That simply doesn't make any sense because federal international organized crime policing, for example, doesn't look anything like community policing in a remote area in northern Saskatchewan. But so are, are they simply, you know, filling a void where, you know, as you say, local and maybe territorial areas uh, don't have the money or don't want to spend the money. So they just tap into the RCMP. That's a big part of it. The RCMP is subsidized. Uh, by the federal government where it provides contracted policing at the municipal and provincial level across Canada. In small communities, it's 30% uh, of the bill is picked up by the federal government, and then slightly larger municipalities, it's 10%. So, you know, when you have an argument to say, all right, let's just disband the RCMP, 
But then what? We've just said they provided policing to 70% of the landmass in Canada, something along the lines of out of the 31, 32 million people in Canada, they are policing just about 20 million of them. Well, where would the policing come from? All of these municipalities, small areas would not be able to establish independent policing organizations overnight. That's why I say you can't sort of start on paper and design it. You look on the ground and you say, all right, where is the RCMP providing good local level municipal policing? And we will find many examples. Most especially, I would say there's some very innovative things being done by the RCMP and the Yukon that the rest of the organization could learn from. And then you say, where is it not going so well? And where are there areas where either municipalities or provinces could establish their own policing services? And should they be little regions or should they be at the provincial level? These are all things that people can tell us because they can see what's happening on the ground. So instead of doing a day to night binary of disband the RCMP tomorrow, you say, all right, where should it be phased out and where should it be retained because it's doing a good job in certain places, working with the resources that we have on the ground? And then in terms of municipal versus federal policing matters, maybe we should ask the membership, the officers in the RCMP, how many of you are interested in carrying on with conventional local level municipal policing uh, activities? And how many of you aspire to more of a federal policing career? Because we actually don't know that at the moment. And then based and on what we find with those numbers, we design and we manage the RCMP in the direction that it seems like it's capable of going when we survey our strengths. And, and that seems to be a key question in this discussion, Michael, doesn't it? I mean, especially when it comes to community policing, as you say, at, at the local level, uh, I, I would think the preference would be people from that area or people who are known in that area uh, to be able to do that. They need to know the people, they need to know the circumstance there, and you're not necessarily going to get that uh, if it's just somebody who drops by and their actual office is 65 miles away. Uh, and we have to ask about, you know, the federal responsibilities, too. We just talked about CSIS on the program yesterday. Uh, who's in charge of t anti-terrorism activity here? Is it, is it them? Is it CSIS? Is it, uh, I think there have to be some lines drawn here, don't there? Well, we need to clarify our lines, absolutely. The CSIS is the main national security agency, but the RCMP still has enforcement and certain investigation responsibilities in the national security file. Um, don't forget before the creation of CSIS in the mid-1980s, the RCMP was fully responsible for national security. And that was a problem uh, because you really shouldn't have your police organization fully responsible for national security. It tends to blend a little bit too much enforcement in with your intelligence function. So we created CSIS. And ever since, those two organizations have not cooperated very well and sometimes have been in competition with one another. So absolutely clean up those lines and clarify what exactly is the RCMP good at doing. The people who should be asking a lot of these questions should be the managers of the RCMP. For just about a dog's age now, we've been calling for a board of management for the RCMP, very much like what we have for municipal police organizations in mm -hmm. police services boards or police commissions across the country, where the commissioner of the RCMP would mostly answer to a civilian board of governors at the federal level. And there should be similar bodies at the provincial levels where the RCMP carries out those uh, affairs. And also at the local level, there are some police advisory boards, but they need more power. 
Because where you have a proper management structure of civilians who are responsible for making sure that their local or provincial or federal RCMP are doing the right things and organizing well, well, you're going to have more rational management like any other business. You shouldn't have political management where the commissioner is a deputy minister answering directly to their minister only because that creates both the reality and the perception that this is a political set of decision makings uh, for policing. That's just not helping the RCMP at all. Well, and I guess the overriding question, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, who has the political courage to tackle this? And uh, that's something I'd like to get some clarity on too. Uh, always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate your input. Okay, right on, Bill. Thank you. You too. Michael Kemp, of course, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to focus on uh, what's going on in Mexico City right now. Uh, that being, of course, the uh, Three Amigos meeting. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, we're told that uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau had a, a face-to-face. And uh, that's happening now and continuing. Uh, we'll get some details about exactly what they're going to be talking about. we Got a speculative idea about the agenda, but what about the relationship between Canada and Mexico? Uh, we this is the three amigos. We get that, and uh, we certainly talk about the Canada-U.S. relations. But what what kind of relationship is there between Canada and Mexico? Not just economically, but uh, culturally and otherwise. And and why don't we talk about it? Does it even exist? And if it doesn't, is there something we can do to to try to cultivate that? Well, there's a great op-ed piece that uh, appeared in the Globe and Mail about this. Uh, it's uh, called Canada's Relationship with Mexico Must Go Beyond Trade. Uh, the author is uh, with us right now. She is Louise Blaze, who is a former senior diplomat and a special advisor for international affairs for the Business Council of Canada. Uh, Louise, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. It's my pleasure to be with you, Bill. I hope the sound is, is not too bad. It's, it's busy here in Mexico City. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about expectations and what's going on there right now. And I'm so fascinated by by your piece. And it, it raised a question, I guess, that we, we need to address is what about the relationship between Canada and Mexico? Uh, you know, and, and I'm, I harken back as I was reading it, Louise, about, uh, you know, past discussions about things like you know, the original discussions about NAFTA and those negotiations that went on. And it just seemed as if for the longest time, uh, an awful lot of people in this country seem to look at Mexico as, as a competitor, not as, as, a, as a, a partner in, in these economic uh, relationships? Well, you know, this is what happens when, when the relationship is exclusively built on trade and trade agreements. Um, and I, I think that what we've lost track of over several decades, actually, this is not a new issue, is that we have a neighborhood, uh, we have a continent in which three countries, Three countries share uh, this geography, and and we've been really distracted by the superpower that we both have that's in between us both, and I think we've let that uh, sort of rule the the relationship. When in fact, um, there's so much more that we have in common. Uh, we're both, uh, you know, former colonies that have become uh, modern democracies. We share values related to our reconciliation with our indigenous population. We have, uh, by and large, um, rule of law related to, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to commerce and trade. And we, and, and we have really a lot in common when it comes to social values. And yet, we really haven't developed the infrastructure to, to optimize that. Is, is it neglect uh, or is there just no desire to pursue that? I think it's been distraction more than anything. 
And, and it's, it, it's a bit of a paradox when you look at so many Canadians love to go to Mexico uh, for the vacation, but it's as if that's just, that's just a, a sort of a, a one activity, but it doesn't really lead to, to broader contacts. We really, in fact, if you, if you look across the country, we don't have uh, frameworks by which we have uh, academic um, relations. There's not a lot of Mexican um, academics in Canada. We don't have student exchanges with Mexico, but we have all of those things uh, with European countries that are, you know, allies, yes, but not on the same continent as Canada. And so now I think as we're talking about resiliency, supply chain management, nearshoring, friendly shoring, um, that's all great. And it's important that we pursue that. But in order for, for that to be on a solid footing I, and to have trust in the relationship at the governmental and business level, I think you need that underpinning, um, those underpinning people-to-people exchanges, academic exchanges, and cultural exchanges that we've done, we've been so good at uh, as a country, uh, but not focused on Canada, not focused in our own backyard. How do we overcome some of the stereotypes? And I'm wondering if that's one of the things that's, 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 contributing to, to the the lack of, of, of this sort of a, a stronger relationship. I mean, a lot of people just, you know, you play word association. I mean, you, know, you mentioned a lot of Canadians love to go down there for holidays. Uh, but sometimes they've told, well, could, you know, just stay at the resort. Don't go away. From, you know, you could be in danger if you go away from the resort. There's, there's that element to it. And, and I don't know that we know much about Mexican economics or Mexican culture. And, and as you mentioned, some of the common challenges when it comes to Indigenous people like that, there's, there's a lot to learn and there's not too many people talking about it or teaching it here. Well, you're right. And I think you, you put your finger on something that, that, that is, I think, an impediment. And this is why we really do need to build those linkages. And I think they're not going to come naturally. I think we need to, we need to have a, a governmental policy that will, that will incentivize it because there is a benefit to doing that. Because you're, you're right. I think what we, the headlines in Canada when it comes to Mexico, it's about the cartels, the crime rate, um, the border issues. It, it really, but that is, that is not the full picture of Mexico. In fact, that's a small picture of what Mexico is. I mean, I come here quite a bit now on, on business travel. This is a sophisticated, modern society with, uh, it's complementary to ours, uh, for sure, when it comes to a lot of uh, uh, commercial and manufacturing, um, if you compare those. But when it comes to, uh, to uh, you know, the love of food, the love of, 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 of the arts, and this is, I think this is the piece that Canadians really do not see um, that is very much here. And so this is why you need, you need to kind of push it. As far as the Mexicans are concerned, I think the, the stereotypes are, are, are different, uh, but they're, they're just as, there's, they, they stand in the way as well. I mean, they see Canada a bit further away. They've got the, you know, they have the Americans to contend with, and there just isn't any energy left at the end of the day to really broaden and deepen those ties. But the benefit would be enormous, so we should really start to talk about it and put in place things that that will foster those uh, those connections. Because once you have those people to people connections, you dispel the preconceived notions and you build that trust. It'll take time; it won't happen overnight. But I think it's something that that is uh, fundamentally important when you have such an uncertain world. Uh, what the last thing we need is uncertainty in North America. 
but but to do that, uh, let's let's as you mentioned, the, well, it's not the elephant in the room. It's a, you know the, the, that big country in between us, uh, and you know even in this meeting with the three amigos. I mean, anytime there's going to be a, a trilateral meeting like this, uh, the Americans are going to suck up a lot of the oxygen. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a reality. Uh, how do you leapfrog over that and simply say, okay, let's let's you and I have some discussions here too. We don't need to invite the Americans every time. We can have a, a Canada-Mexico relationship as well. Well, in this area, I think that we, uh, the business community, is leading the charge. I'm very, you know, very um, happy to see that the um, we now have really close ties between the, for example, the Business Council of Canada and the Consejo uh, de uh, de Negocios de Mexico, and. So the, the business leaders are, are getting that this is starting to be important, that we're really only the, the, the three pillars of the relationship will only be as strong as the Canada-Mexico pillar has been reinforced. And so there's been a lot of initiative over the past year. And now we need to we need to add the cultural piece to that and the academic piece that will help sort of bolster it. Now. It's a danger. You never want to make the Americans feel like you're going to gang up on them. That is mm -hmm. not a winning strategy. I've served in the U.S. for a long time. I know that. So it has to be done in a very aspirational, positive way that includes them in the conversation and in which they, they, they feel they're a part of that. And then they see the benefit of, of, of really a robust Canada-Mexico relation. Because you don't want to create, as you mentioned, this atmosphere. It's it's like three neighbors on the same street. You know, if if your neighbor to your left passes your house and goes to the neighbor on the right, you can say, "What's going on here? How come they're not talking to me?" Uh, so you don't want to do that. And I'm not suggesting there's any paranoia necessarily, but but does that preclude us from trying to to develop a relationship with Mexico, uh, as you say, with cultural and so many other aspects of this, not just economic? Well, I. I, I... I think that we haven't even gotten that far in our thinking. I think it, we just haven't, we haven't even evaluated the pros and cons. And so this is why I, I felt it was important to, to publish the piece and, and, and to just get that conversation going. And then we need, then we'll have to calibrate it. And we have to, as I said, I, I don't see that as being a big, a big problem. I think, you know, for example, it could be very beneficial for the United States. I mentioned you know, we sh really should collaborate more with Mexico in the multilateral fora. Um, we should because they bring in, they have their sphere of influence in Latin America, and we have ours in Europe and, you know, G20 and G, you know, G7 and so on and so forth. If we combine those two spheres of influence for things that we have in common, we really would push some really positive agenda items in, in, that, in, in those arenas that are supportive of the American. Um, agenda as well. So we have to demonstrate that to the Americans that this is to their to their great uh, that they'll gain from this, and I think that that can be easily done. I'm very comfortable and confident that that we could do that. When we start talking about our problems and looking for solutions for them, uh, and, and I'll, I'll throw immigration into that as, as part of this. You talked about some of the concerns on the border, and I know that that uh, the, the presidents, the two presidents I'm meeting this week are going to talk about that. Canada has a role to play in that as well because of, of the concern. But can that Mexico be part of this, this solution, the skills trade shortage that we were just talking about? Uh, there are qualified, skilled people that, that, that we'd love to have come up here. Uh, can that be part of that discussion as well so that it can be a, a mutually beneficial exercise? Absolutely. And this is something yesterday we held here in Mexico, the very first ever uh, trilateral business summit. Um, this was, it was the first time that the NALS actually had that, a business component. And this came up 
uh, a great deal. This, this facilitating labor mobility at a time of great labor shortages, both in Canada and, uh, and in, in the US, the Mexican government is quite open to that. Um, and they, uh, this is where we, I think we could probably get some headway um, over the next year. So let's wait and see what comes out today of the, of the, uh, of the declaration coming out of the summit. I'm expecting a very positive uh, North America competitive agenda framework uh, moving forward. And, and it would not be surprising to have labor mobility be included as, as one of the areas that our three governments will, will want to push um, the policy uh, makers to their own policy makers to come up with those solutions. So let's wait and see, but I'm actually kind of optimistic today. Well, and, and again, I think I'm glad to hear that because as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, we seem to be uh, Eurocentric a lot of the time when it comes to, to looking for skilled trades and labor and, and, and immigration. And uh, I think we're missing a real viable opportunity here uh, to, to start looking to the south as opposed to simply across the oceans. We'll see how it goes and we'll look for the news out of this. Uh, I encourage our, friend, our listeners, though, to go to the Globe and Mail webpage, uh, globeandmail.com, and uh, read the op-ed piece. I think it's a uh, thought-provoking and uh, something that we need to talk about. Louise, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. It was my pleasure, and thank you for the kind words. Thank you. Louise Blades, uh, former senior diplomat or uh, senior advisor, of course, for International Affairs in the Business Council of Canada, speaking to us from Mexico City, where the uh, three leaders, the North American leaders, are getting together on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.